Our text this morning is Mark 7, 1 to 23. Mark chapter 7, 1 to 23. And it's a long reading. Let me see if I can read it as fast as I can. So not to lose you in the reading. The sermon today is God and traditions. Religious traditions. Okay? And this passage deals with that from the Gospel of Mark. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have to let go of the commandments of God, or you have let go of the commandments of God, and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses says, honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother to be put to death. But you say, and if, any, if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is Corban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he had left the crowd and entered the house, and his disciples asked him about the parable. Are you still so dull? he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. That is from within, because out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And this ends the reading of God's word. This passage, if you notice, or maybe you did notice, but I'll tell you, repeats the word tradition seven times. When a word is repeated as you read in the Bible, perhaps God is trying to tell you something about that subject. Seven times Jesus makes a point about traditions. And that is our topic. Traditions and God. Or God and traditions. There's the story of an experiment that was made, perhaps many of you have read it or heard about it, of five monkeys that were put in a cage with a ladder and a banana hanging from the top of the cage. When one of the monkeys would go up the ladder to reach the banana, somebody came with a hose and sprayed the other four. 
And this thing repeated and repeated. Monkey would go up, somebody come with a hose and spray the other four monkeys. After a while, clock timer. I didn't set any clock timer, but it's okay. After a while, they stopped spraying the monkeys. But whenever a monkey would try to go up the ladder for the banana, the other four would beat him. Say, let's do something. Let's replace one monkey. So they bring a new monkey to town. The monkey, of course, sees the banana. Awesome. Goes up the ladder, tries to reach it. The four remaining monkeys beat the monkey. They don't want to get hosed down. They started replacing the monkeys one by one. You know what happened after a while? That there were five new monkeys in the cage. There were five new monkeys, a cage, a ladder, and a banana, and nobody went up for the banana because the banana was evil. It was not a religious experiment. It was a social experiment to prove what is true of us. We are gregarious by nature. Unless you're a very weird oddball, and believe me, I am weird. But if you are even more weird than me, and you don't like people, this is not for you. But if you are like the rest of all us weirdos, you at least like to be part of a group, even though if they are kind of weird. Even in our chat, in our high school chat, there's a larger chat, smaller chat, smaller chat, and you, you sort of click. It's human nature to click. And when you start clicking and gathering, you start doing by nature what is the conduct of the group. And you start doing things that you observe, and you don't even ask or question why. That's the way religion works too with traditions. You are taught this is the way it's done, and woe is thee, you try to climb up the ladder and grab the banana because the other four monkeys will beat you too. Now, Jesus said in John 8:32 to the Jews, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Let me give you a little secret. The more you know your Bible on your own, the harder it will be to trap you and to mold you and to manipulate you into man-made religious traditions. Get to know Scripture, and the more you know Scripture, the more free you will be. What's the context of this passage? This appears to happen at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Three and a half years he ministered publicly. Live from 1 to 30. At 30 he started to minister. That's the way the high priest would do. You would enter the high priest ministry or service at 30. Jesus started at 30, labored for three years and a half to the cross. At the beginning of his ministry, he lived in Capernaum, north of Israel, Galilean ministry, as it is called by those students of the scripture. His ministry was divided in sections. This is at the beginning of his Galilean ministry to the north. Jerusalem was south, but to the north of Israel, in Capernaum specifically, there was a toll booth, a toll gate. Traveling merchants would come north to south, go through that toll gate, pay toll tax, and keep going with their, uh, with their goods, with their products. Those merchants who would go by the city, and it was not a toll gate that you go 50 miles an hour with a little marker on top that builds you directly at home like we do, you, you're coming with carts and animals and camels and donkeys, and you have to spend time at the place to go through the place and pay the taxes. 
they would carry the fame of Jesus. Remember that Mark says his fame spread throughout all the land. Those merchants would start to spread the fame of this new rabbi, this new teacher that taught like no one else ever had taught. And he also did miracles that no one else had ever done. And this reaches the south, Jerusalem. And they need to find out what's going on in this northern town. So verse 1 in Mark 7 shows these Pharisees that came to check this new teacher who was doing great miracles. And as they came to check and inspect what's going on, first thing they find is that Jesus and his disciples would be eating without washing their hands. All right, there's a couple of doctors here among my friends, and, and they'd say there's nothing wrong with that. That's hygienic. That prevents a lot of illnesses. Yes, but this is not a hygienic issue or a hygiene issue. This is a religious issue. The Jews would wash their hands, and they had a very particular ritual to do that, by which they would pour hand water three times in the hands, and they would wash them three times with clean water. And the purpose was, according to the oracle Shahim, and I'll read it, a man must be careful in pouring water in his hands three times, for an evil spirit rests upon the hands before washing. And it does not depart until water is poured on them three times. Therefore, it is necessary before eating or, or before washing to abstain from touching his hand to the mouth, nose, ears, and eyes, because an evil spirit rests in them. So this is religious ceremonial washing to purify the hands and the food and all the pots and kettles and whatever they were using to, feed, to be fed because they wanted to remove demons from entering them and be unclean. Now, it's interesting that this tradition had a biblical origin, believe it or not. In Exodus, there was a basin set outside the, ta the tabernacle where the priest would have to wash before entering the service. And it was ceremonial washing to imply purity. And then with the passing of time and at the time of Jesus, now 1,500 years have gone by, they were at the time of the third temple, the rabbis and the scribes and those religious instructors that from the days of Ezra started to gather traditions in the Mishnah and in other documents, those traditions were made to help people keep the Torah. And that's the way religious, religion was taught because in the times of Jesus, 90% of the people were illiterate. So you have 90% of illiteracy and you have the Pharisees teaching the Torah not with the Bible, which they read in the synagogue, but with the religious traditions to help people keep the Torah. So you have a guy telling you what God commands. And indeed, when they washed, they thank God for his commandments and for the commandment of the washing of the hands. They really thought they were obeying God. And what's the subtlety of the tradition? That God never, ever commanded this. Never. Yes, he commanded it to the priests, but it had a context. He commanded ceremonial washing in Leviticus 15 also, when there were times of, of uncleanliness, but it had a religious context. What the Pharisees were doing had nothing to do with the truth, but it was venom mingled with the truth. And what happens if you take a drop of cyanide and put it in your orange juice? 
you're going to get poisoned. But it's just a drop. That's the danger of truth or, or religion without truth. That's the danger of doing things by rote because we have always done it that way and we have never challenged why we do things the way we do it. It's just a little tiny poison that contaminates the whole package. Now, you want to know something weird? For a conservative Jew, not washing the hands three times before eating was equivalent to committing fornication. Now, things get really complicated. Now, it's not just that, well, we have this, this tradition to help. Yes, but if you violate it, you are as evil in the sight of God and as unclean, and if you read Leviticus 15, you'll find out why, as if you were a sexually immoral and impure person. And that is the power of religion. Because religious zeal is not necessarily equivalent to God-centered zeal. They look alike, but they are not the same. The Pharisees, according to Paul in chapter 9 of Romans, they had zeal without knowledge. They were very jealous for God. But they did not know what they were jealous for, who they were jealous for. They were very passionate, but they didn't have instruction. Any equivalence with reality is not a coincidence. It's a warning from the Bible. Zeal for God in Scripture is tied to God's glory. Jesus said, the zeal of your house consumes me. Zeal for God is tied to his kingdom, to the gospel, to his purposes, to his honor. Zeal for God doesn't have anything to do with disrespect for my perceived traditions. And the Pharisees were angry at Jesus, not because of God, but the text we read says it. Because they were breaking the traditions of the elders and of the fathers. And these traditions have hundreds of years. Some Christians, and I was one of them, believe that orthodoxy is about four to five hundred years old because it is tied to a particular confession to which we subscribe as a congregation, by the way. The Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, it defines our body of doctrine, but that's not the Bible. That is just telling a person, this is what we believe. But it doesn't mean Christianity and Orthodox Christianity is that. No, not necessarily. Fervor and passion for God are not synonyms of truth. Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man. That's the right way. I'm serving God. I am correct. You know what Solomon says? But it's end. It's an end of death. Conviction doesn't mean you're right. Being persuaded of being in the right doesn't make you to be right. How did Jesus respond to this challenge of the religious establishment 
of the leaders of religion. Because when we talk about the Pharisees, we see them so far apart. Right? 2,000 years distance, another language, another culture, another continent. Nothing to do with us. But it was a religious establishment. The Pharisees of our day would be pastors, theologians, doctors, cardinals, priests of any denomination. The religious establishment. Those we revere because of their piousness and their religiosity and their knowledge of theology and of scripture and history. How did Jesus respond? First thing, verses 6 to 10 of the passage we read. He appealed to scripture. He said to them, Well, the prophet Isaiah said of you, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. That is a very common sin. That we mouth the words, we say the right things, but the mind and the heart are elsewhere. Raise your hand if you have never, ever, ever, ever praying gone off elsewhere. Raise your hand if reading the Bible, and I'm in my five chapters a day program, and all of a sudden you find yourself in the half of the fourth chapter, and you say, how on planet earth did I reach here? Haven't you been driving? And after you cross the second toll booth in the turnpike, you said, and how exactly did I come here? It even happens driving. It happens reading. It happens praying. It happens singing. We're singing indescribable God. And I'm checking if Jesus is not messing up with the violin or if Tony's stepping on all the accords and the guitar or if everybody's singing in tune. I'm just, my mind is elsewhere. I am not concentrated on saying to God, you are indescribable. It is a problem we all have. The issue Jesus is dealing with is devotion without truth. Teaching as commandments the rules made by men. Because we are religious people by nature. doesn't matter what culture you go, what language, what place. Mankind, and I'm going to say men in general... Uh, men, humankind, we are religious by nature. We will create some kind of God or gods that we will bow to. Fascinating how scripture describes that. A man goes to the field, cuts a tree, shapes it, molds it, paints it, does all these things, and then sets it on a table and bows, you are my God. Dude, but you made it. We keep doing it. We do that in our minds. We create our own gods and then we create our systems to please and appease these gods we made. And yes, we do it even with the true and living God. Even God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the triune God who subsists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even the true and living God, we have our own system to approach Him, to please and appease Him. And God asks in Isaiah 1.12, tell me who has required this of your hands? Oh, but it's a good idea. That's not the question God is asking. If it's a good idea or it's a bad idea. Who 
ask you to bring this to me. But we keep doing it. God says, I desire mercy, not a sacrifice. I desire that you unleash the cords of wickedness, that you share your bread with the hungry, that you cover the naked, that you show a compassionate heart. I'm not asking you to fast and make your face so sad and white or whatever, uh, emaciated, that everybody knows how pious you are. I'm not asking you for that. I'm just asking you to be kind and merciful and run away from sin and be considerate and kind and compassionate and cover the needy, the needs of those who have needs. You find out somebody has a need, you have a couple of bucks to give, pass them on. Don't, don't complicate it. Just do it. That's the heart of God. He hasn't required great sacrifices from us. Let me give you a tip. Develop this mind reflex to react biblically. I think I've told you many times before that when... And by the way, I studied Taekwondo, but I'm not a Taekwondo expert. If I see any problem, I'll run. And if I cannot run, I'll talk. And if I cannot talk, I'll say, dude, dude take it. You know, I, I, I'm not into that. I'm, I'm an old dude, and I cannot fight or run or do anything. So, but but for, for several years, I, I took these Taekwondo lessons, and, and we would be very stupidly all day. <laughs> Why do we do this? Because you block, and you're showing the part of your arm that has more meat. And if somebody strikes you, you rather block them with that than with that because the bone is right there. That's all. And they would call it muscle memory. And if you kick, you cover, and then you kick. Don't kick with your chest up there because somebody's going to take a good shot at you. And those of you who study Taekwondo have heard that and do that very well. Well, do the same with your minds. Develop the mind and the reflex to think biblically. Do you know how you do that? Getting to read and to know your Bible. So when any clown or charlatan stands up here to tell you stories and to manipulate your emotions, to suck money out of you, you can read through them and run for your lives. Because there is many charlatans who stand up here to do that. Either for money for glory, for power, or for whatever the reason it is. And Jesus' point is, he went to Scripture. What does Isaiah say about tradition? And as a wisdom teacher, Jesus challenged their thought with another question. When they would come to him with a question, why do your disciples don't wash their hands? Jesus said, why do you break God's law, Moses' law, with your tradition? Oh, what do you mean? When do we do that? Oh, there's the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother. And that's the example Jesus uses. And the honor your father and your mother means that when they are old, and that was a society that didn't have welfare, didn't have social security, didn't have any program or system to take care of the aging people, they counted on their children for their sustenance. And the Pharisees coined a brilliant system to get away with that when your parents were old and you knew they needed help 
you'd say, oh, you know what, mom, dad, I do have the money, but it's Corban. That word is in your text. And Mark explains it. It's Corban. It is an offering to God. I have reserved it for God, and I cannot give it to you. Now, since I have reserved it for God, I still keep control of it. So I'm going to put it in this nice certificate of deposit, making interest and making money for me, so I can make some passive income from it, but I cannot give it to you because it is my offering to God. That was the vileness and the evil of the Pharisees in their traditions. And you know what? They thought they were cutting it right with God. They thought God was pleased with them. The skillful act of religious deception. You've heard the story of the Jewish guy. Sorry if you're a Jew. But it's a story. That's the way it goes. I didn't, I didn't invent a joke. But you've heard the story of the Jewish guy who's looking for a parking lot, right? And he's desperate, looking for a parking lot. He was running late for his meeting. And he says to the Lord, Lord, if you find me a parking lot right now, I promise you, I vow to you, I will give you half of my possessions. I will give you half of my salary. I will serve you. I will go to the synagogue every Saturday. And at that very moment he's vowing, there's a guy pulling out of his parking lot. And he's going to take it. He says, oh Lord, by the way, it's okay. I found this one. Let it go. (laughs) That's the art of religious deception. The farmer with the two cows. One was for him. One was for the Lord. Lightning bolt hit. Killed one of the cows, and he gathered the family. We're so sorry that the lightning bolt killed the Lord's cow. This one is ours. We do that. We are experts at religious deception, self-deception. You know what's the evil of traditions? Jesus said it twice in verses 13 and 9 in the reading we had. You nullify, you make void, You make ineffective the word of God with your traditions. Let me tell you a personal story. I used to read that for decades. Not for months and weeks, no, decades. Long decades. I've been in this for 43 years now. And you know whom I thought about? The Roman Catholic Church. Because they have their traditions mixed with the Bible. Which is true. And one day, I said, wait a second. The evangelical church and the Protestants and even my own church has a lot of traditions that are not found in Scripture. This is not talking about Roman Catholics. This is talking about me. There's this tradition that only pastors and elders can administer communion. Would you please show me where? Oh, let me give you this compound argument. No, there's no compound argument. You're doing what my son told me once is that. You know the Bible so well that you can justify anything you want with it. But you know it's not there. It's not there. Only pastors can baptize. Really. So you think that the 3,000 and the 5,000 baptized in Acts were baptized by pastors? Well, they were the designated of the apostles. Really? Really? Only pastors can preside over Christian ceremonies. Can anybody point to a Christian marriage ceremony in the New Testament? Don't find any. 
there's a lot of traditions we have. Women, I used to go to a church like that. Women will not wear makeup, will not wear pants, will not braid their hair. They will look as ugly as they possibly can because that's holiness. Believe me that in my days when I was young, if you found a girl pretty, she was pretty for real. There was no deception. It was for real. At least to you. Human traditions. Liturgies. Church liturgies. Oh, you shall have a call to worship. You shall have two hymns, the Bible reading, two more hymns, or now the way we do it. Guys, those are man-made traditions. Now, I am not trashing traditions. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he commended them for following the traditions they had learned from him. Some liturgies are good. Others are better. Others are fantastic. Confession. Freddie changed the liturgy in Cornerstone some months ago because now we start by that serious, dry German guy who's very loving. He's sitting back there. Good morning. If you are visiting, we welcome you. But he, believe me, you approach him and he's loving. He will embrace you. He'll cry with you. He'll pray for you. But that's the way God made him. Dry and serious. But he's a very loving person. Now, I'm glad Freddie changed the liturgy because I prefer that. And then comes the reading of Scripture. And then comes the praying. And then we sing. I find that more conducive to worship than to have these mingled things of announcements and reading and then more announcements and then more singing. And at the end, you end up in a convoluted thing. And when I, you stand up to preach, you wonder, where exactly do I pick things up? It's a great way to follow things. And I love it. And others have even better forms to do it. No problems with liturgies. The problem is, are they leading me in the path of truth? Or are they pulling me away from the truth? And here's the challenge about, liturgy, about traditions. There's two, two approaches you have to religion and God. Two. Two theologies. You have a theology of glory... Or you have a theology of the cross. The theology of glory is that one that leads you to self. I call it performance religion. Spec sheet. Give me the spec sheet of Freddie. Oh, Freddie's a good man because of all of these things. That's theology of glory. The theology of the cross is give me the spec sheet of Freddie. Oh, he's a broken man. You can hardly pray with him and he will not weep. And he will not drive you to the cross. And he will not point you to Jesus. And he will not confess his own sins and yours. And seek the glory of God only in Christ. That's a theology of the cross. If your traditions lead, lead you to the cross, awesome. If they lead you to perform better, to do better, to adapt better to the group, to sort of conform better to how we do things, be careful. Be careful, it doesn't matter where the tradition comes from. Now, what about us? <laughs> How does this passage deal with me? And that's my third and final point. Well, the late Jerry Bridges had a book called Respectable Sins. I love that title. Respectable Sins. 
And what were those respectable sins? Those subtle, hidden sins that we keep away and hidden from people. Those people cannot see because I make sure that I appear to you with my best possible clothing, with my hair combed and my beard trimmed, because I want to hide all the imperfections as much as I can. And we do that religiously. Respectable sins. (laughs) Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. I had the privilege some months ago, and I was with, with Ricky and his wife, they are here, to walk through a cemetery in Israel, in Jerusalem. You're coming from the Gethsemane Garden, and you go through this valley and go up back to the city, and you traverse the cemetery. You know what's the predominant color of the cemetery? White. White washed tombs. What would happen if a DA says we need to do a, an exhumation of a body and open and crack the tombstone and pull out the body because we need to do some DNA tests? That is a gory, horrific, horrendous imagery. And Jesus told the Pharisees, that's what you are. You're whitewashed tombs. You have these nice tombstones on the outside. And you appear beautiful to people. But inside, you are dead, you're filled with dry bones and rottenness. And that's where tradition meets us. Because Jesus says, and he called the crowd and said, listen to me. And I only imagine the voice of the Lord being sturdy and being firm and commanding. Listen to me, people. It is not what comes into a person that makes them unclean. But it is what comes out of a person's mouth that makes them unclean. Because what you eat goes to the stomach, and some translations say goes to the latrine. The Lord was very graphic. Very graphic. But what you speak (laughs) comes out of your heart because the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And the sins that contaminate a person, and I miss having the screen right now, because Jesus lists 13, and I'll have to go very fast through them. Evil thoughts. Who can stop them? Who can stop evil thoughts? We have a neurologist here, my friend Guillermo. I read this on the internet. I don't know if it's true, so if I'm saying something stupid, sorry. But I read that we have 70,000 thoughts a day. I don't know who's the weirdo that counts that. I mean, I cannot even take a minute and try to count how many thoughts I have. But that's what they said. Okay. 70,000 thoughts a day. Evil thoughts. How many of those thoughts are evil? You know, when I was a kid, had my pediatrician... 85 years old today. And uh, we always spoke about the Bible. Oh, whether he was checking me, whatever, but we ended up talking about the Bible. And I still visit him. And he told me some years ago, as I was visiting him, can you help me with something? Imagine this 85-year-old Christian of many years. He says, tell me. He says, 
I'm 85 years old. And I wake up in the morning. And I have all these evil thoughts crowding my mind. And he was broken. And his eyes were red. How can I fix that? And I told him, you can't. Me neither. But I'll tell you what I do with mine. I take them to Jesus and say, Son of mercy, Son of God, have mercy on me. Son of David, please clean my mind. Sometimes I have dreams. And they are evil dreams. And I wake up in the middle of the night and I tell the Lord, I don't know where this comes from. Well, I know. Who knows what I thought during the day? Please clean my mind. And we'll die in that battle until the day that mind and body will be transformed. And as 1 John says, we have this hope of one day being awakened in the likeness of our Savior. No more sin, no more battle with what we are, who we are, and what we thought. But Jesus says, out of the heart comes those evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, fantasizing, burning with lust. One thing is eros. Another thing is porneian. Eros is the right thing in marriage. Porneian is the devil's distortion of the blessing and the pleasures of sex. Theft, taking someone else's property. I always use the pen because let me see who did I steal this one from. Komatsu. That ain't for me. That ain't for me to give it to some customer. But I have so many of them that I said, okay, I can take this for me and use it for my notes. But really, Komatsu gave it to me for my customers. Well, I'm a thief. I mean, if you really want to measure holiness, if you really want to perform before God, okay, come, bring it on. Bring it on to the one that the Bible says he finds fault in angels. Angels. If God inspects them, uh-uh, not to my standard. Because Tony sang the hymn based on Isaiah 40, what will you compare me to? Sitting with my son yesterday watching the World Baseball Classic, and yes, Dominican lost, so we're all taped. Don't bring it on. But he tells me, Dad, how many people are here? He says, I don't know, this thing holds 36,000, and it was pretty packed. So let's say there were, there were 25,000, not to exaggerate, I think there were 30,000 souls there cheering. And then we started talking, and God knows their thoughts. God knows their pains. God knows their illusions. God knows their desires. God knows everything about them. And Miguel says, yes, he even has the, head of their, the hair of their heads counted. Because Jesus says that in Matthew 10. He says, yes, son, yes, God, yes, son. We cannot fathom this mind, this being, this person that created this whole thing. He's infinite. And he's infinite in holiness. So you want to perform before him? You say, oh, I'm a good person. Murder. Jesus says, yeah, murder. If you get angry at your neighbor, you already killed him. When we were driving this morning, Danny was riding behind us, and Marky had to call, caught him to get into the church. And I had to say, hey, Danny, I'm sorry. This Dominican driver caught you. I was says, yeah, I noticed. How many times are we not caught when we're driving? And what do we say? Oh, the Lord bless you. You moron. Jesus says, you called him. You killed him. You idiot. 
Adultery. Oh, I've never committed adultery. Never. Only one woman. Yes, that's me. And many of you. Not true. Even yesterday at the game, I was sitting in this horrendous seat that everybody was coming up and down. They did not let me watch the game. But I saw all kinds of things from women coming up and down. And it was a battle not to let my eyes covet. That's who we are. Greed. Desiring more. Wanting more. Never thought on the Tenth Commandment until I bought my new house. 31 years old, happy with my new house. I thought I was the king of the world. And I was there with the kids running around and I saw my neighbor's house. <laughs> Bigger, brighter, two-story, nice garage. And I looked at mine and I was completely unsatisfied and unhappy. And I understood, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's wife or his donkey, or his mule, or his farm, or his field, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Ten Commandments are just to point us to the fact that we cannot keep them. Malice, malignity, wickedness, lewdness, sexual immorality on steroids, envy, the anger of not having what others have, the depression of I didn't make it, I'm not as successful as my friends from high school. I didn't make it like them. Why? Jesus says, envy comes out of the heart. Slander. Slander? No, I don't slander. You don't? You always say things about other people who are not, they are not there exactly as you say it to them? Or do we fix it? That idiot. You know, we were talking about you, that you should consider your ways because they should... No, tell him. We said that you're an idiot. No, you, we don't say that. Slander, says Jesus. Arrogance. Oh, we're good at that one. Especially we Christians. Especially we Reformed Christians. That feeling of superior morality. I'm not like other men. I'm not adulterous. I'm not a drunkard. I'm better. I'm religious. I go to church on Sundays. Jesus says, that's evil. Contaminates a person. Folly, annoia, mindlessness, stupidity. Okay, 13 things. Tell me, which one do you not commit? Get the point? That's where this thing hits us. That's why the gospel is not what we do, it's what Jesus did. Job asked, How can a person justify himself before God? How can the person born of a woman stand up before God and say, here I am. You must let me in. Job says, you can't. Impossible. Traditions clog and fog the gospel. Traditions turn the eye away from the cross to put it on us. What am I doing and performing for God this week? Traditions take away the fact from our eyesight that it is justified by faith. And by faith alone, in Jesus alone, that we can have peace with God. Holy way. It's a declaration. 
You are guilty, but go. Go. I declare you non-guilty. I already put the guilt on the cross on, over my son. You can walk. By the way, don't leave. Come back. I'm going to take you to home. You're going to be my child now. The gospel is that. It's a free gift. And traditions clog that. So inspect your traditions. Do they lead you to Jesus? Or do they lead you to self? I leave you with that homework. And may God bless his word. Let's pray. Father, take your word and uh, apply it to where we are, what we need, and be glorified in reminding us of the inability we have to justify ourselves before you, but also be glorified in reminding us that Jesus paid it all, and that in him we find our trust, our trust, our hope, and our salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.